This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, Trickster God. I like reading poets' memoirs. Maybe because poets understand white space and how much you can say by not saying it. A lot is being left unsaid in Saeed Jones's memoir from 2019, titled How We Fight for Our Lives. In the opening chapter, Saeed Jones, who's 12 then and living with his mother in Texas, finds a Polaroid between the pages of a book. It's a picture of a man he's never seen before, looking straight into the camera and smiling. Jones writes, quote, The smile felt intimate, inappropriate, like a hand sliding down where it should not be. Later, when his mother comes home from work, he asks her about him, but she says nothing. When I was younger, Jones writes, I would give up during mom's pauses because I thought the answer wasn't going to come. Eventually, I learned that she was just testing me to see how serious I was about finding out. And eventually she does tell him. The man was a friend from school. Not long after, he found out he was sick and killed himself. His mother is already headed for the bedroom, but little Saeed Jones can get just one more question in. Sick with what? AIDS, she says, and shuts the door. The memoir is built around these brutal silences. Saeed Jones about being gay, his mother about being sick. She has congestive heart failure. But Jones doesn't find out how bad things really are until not long after he graduates college, his mother slips into a coma and dies. For his new poetry collection, which came out earlier this year, Alive at the End of the World, Saeed Jones turns his gaze from his own life to the end times we're all living in. But first, I wanted to ask him about his memoir. There's one thing that I always wonder about when I read a memoir, and that is, like, how do you create the persona of the I? Like, how do you create you, basically? Uh You know, so I think with poetry, it's really like a snapshot or, um, you know, TikToks are kind of long, but, like, when Vine was around, which was to say, like, those Mm -hmm. six-second videos, that's how I would describe a poem. Like, it's a moving image, but you really only kind of have a couple of seconds, you know, to describe action and character. And so that's why Poetry Collection is so great, because you can develop a character in brushstrokes over the course of several poems. Um, With How We Fight For Our Lives, my memoir, yeah, I mean, first, I mean, in terms of creating the eye, it was just a delight. You have so much more canvas and time Mm -hmm. (laughs) to work with. And so, yeah, I think... I think as a writer, because the book, for example, opens and I'm 12 years old, there's literal distance. You know, I'm in my 30s now. And so it's more about what would I have understood or thought at the time? You know, what does a 12-year-old do when he's anxious, for example? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think just kind of rooting it in the specificity of your 13-year-old version of yourself 
is going to deal with anger or or sadness or heartbreak very differently than your 20 year old version right uh, um, hopefully, hopefully, yeah. hopefully hopefully you know so some people never get there <laughs> and and um I noticed that those parts where you write in the voice of 12-year-old you, 14-year-old you, that it was extremely detailed, you know, like what you saw first and then what happened and where you were and what that made you feel like. And I was just wondering, do you have an amazing memory? Do you have diaries? How did you do that? Um, one, I personally, over the years that I was working on the book and you can kind of define that between a decade to six years, depending on when you want to say what I'm officially working on the book. You know, I know you know how these projects live with us for a very long yep, time. Yep. But over the course of that time, I managed to visit every location that appears in the book. So, you know, the opening chapter, for example, I went back to that apartment complex. So when I describe Cody and his brother playing, you know, catch, you know, I was kind of, mm -hmm. I was like, yep, there's the parking lot. Like, I'm not making that up. You know, the tree that my mother looks at, for example, I was like, okay, you know, like you're, you're just kind of like confirming those visual details. And then drawing, sometimes literally like drawing a map of the spaces where scenes would take place was very helpful. Mm. Um, it was like kind of mapping out our apartment, it would also help me kind of think of other characters, you know, where would my mother go as soon as she walked in to the apartment after work? Where would she go, as you see in the chapter, you know, to kind of end the conversation, she goes in her bedroom immediately and like turns up <laughs> the news on her TV. So that was almost like, I don't know, a, a theater director, kind uh -huh. of like having your actors on stage and you you have to give everyone business. You have to give everyone something to do during a dinner scene. And so it's a delight to kind of think of the subtle details and kind of, you think of people's routines. So I would just go, oh, well, what did I usually do, you know, during days during the summer when I had nothing to do? How did I film my time? What would my mother do? when she would get home from work. How did she usually feel when she got home from work? And I've just been like eating all the food, using all the air conditioning. <laughs> and she's trudged through the heat, you know? And, and then that sets it up because, you know, then duh, she's not really excited to have this conversation. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I also was wondering about that because you have no siblings mm -hmm. and your mom raised you alone. And so in a way, your only witness to your childhood right. at many times is your mother right. um, who died like mm -hmm. over 10 years ago. And so you start writing this memoir after her death. And, and so you couldn't ask her anything. Right. What was that like for you? You know, I mean, first, I, I think of memoir, you know, the form is about memory and memory is unreliable. And I think it's important to to embrace that and to really examine the implications of what it means to be your own unreliable narrator. So, you know, and, and there are certainly family members, friends, uh, colleagues, peers who appear in the book who are still alive, still part of my life, that I didn't, like, interview them. I, I thought it was important. And, you know, you see me do this explicitly. Like, there's a, a scene, you know, a little bit later in the book after a harrowing moment in a church with my grandmother, and it's it's really fraught. It's it's very upsetting for yeah, everyone involved. Yeah, she pulls, you to, the front, right, <laughs> right, she pulls yeah. you to the front of the church and is basically yeah. like, you know, yeah. you have to confess that you're, exactly. like, a Buddhist, or right. your mom's a Buddhist. Right, my I, mom's I a Buddhist. I'm like, I'm just a kid. You know, it's horrific. Yeah. And then... In 
in the chapter. It's like all of this is unfolding. It's charged. It's loaded. I am like, it feels like young Said on the page as a narrator is like about to explode because he's so upset. And then I have to acknowledge that I don't remember what happened between the time we walked out of the sanctuary and made it to the car, which is only like about four or five minutes. But, you know, with a high stakes moment, you would like to think oh, you remember everything. But that's not actually how memory works. And so I think it's important to acknowledge and say, I wish I knew what happened next, but I don't. And I think you can build intimacy and and, and trust with a reader because I go, yeah, that is how it is sometimes. And so I say all that to say, with my mother, I, I, I thought, I feel that because she wasn't here to speak for herself, it informed my ethics. And so... I hope that you see that I'm trying to honor that dynamic, that I was like, wow, like I am the only living witness for a lot of these scenes. And and what does it mean? What does it mean to have to speak for myself, but also to speak for a person who cannot speak up for themselves, often about moments where we failed each other, where we misunderstood each other. You know, it's, it's one thing to rhapsodize about, you know, how wonderful, you know, my mom was and how great our relationship was. And and, and that's true. But also there were a lot of silences, you know, mm-hmm. when it came to sexuality, identity, health, obviously, we were very bad at talking about. And so I think to me, it was like, instead of trying to I don't know, create bridges across gaps. I just wanted to honor the gaps. I I think every relationship is specific and I wanted you to understand that I love her present tense very much, perhaps even more so now as a result of both the distance and the the maturity that comes with like, oh yeah, that that was not a great moment as a parent, but also let's think about why these failings happen. I have one last question about the memoir, sure. and then let's yeah. move on to your poetry collection. Actually, it's not so much about the memoir as about the time afterwards, once it was published, because you were everywhere. I was. Like, <laughs> right? I mean, it was published three years ago in 2019. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you were in The New York Times, online PR, The New Yorker, Oprah, BuzzFeed, L, like a bunch of other places. And the other day I went for a walk with a friend. You know, we were planning like a next hangout. And a, and she said, what about Thursday? And I said, well, I can't because I'm interviewing someone. Oh, who are you interviewing? Saeed Jones. Oh, serious. I've just read his memoir. Oh. <laughs> and, and this doesn't happen when I talk to other poets. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> you blew up in a massive way, right? And And I was just wondering what was that like to have so many eyes on you? Um, I mean, I'm I'm grateful. I'm incredibly grateful. Tell your friend I said hello. (laughs) How wonderful. Because again, yeah, I mean, you know, I I started out as a poet. Uh, Poetry brought me to the writing life as a vocation. And, you know, I think anyone who's a poet and self-aware, you're like... You know, like you don't go into it being like, oh, I'm going to have like a football stadium full of <laughs> like that's not that's one of the few delusions poets don't generally <laughs> hold for um, So, you know, it was it's a delight. You know, I, I wanted to write a memoir 
that I was proud of that felt, you know, it has all of these different works. I mean, clearly they're like political and cultural ideas, but also the book is a love letter to my mother. It is an mm -hmm. ode to her as a person, to her as a single parent. Um, it's an ode to people, you know, going through similar experiences, whether that is violence or internalized homophobia. It's people going through being a first-generation college student and certainly grief. You know, I, I wanted to honor these different facets. And so I think, you know, I think if you start thinking like in terms of I'm blowing up and oh, my, you, you can spin out. But instead, I would just try to focus on people are connecting with this work for a reason. Try to still yourself as best you can, Saeed, and listen to the reason for why it's rest. And usually people will say, you know, and, and um, that's what I tried to focus on because, you know, attention is a is a trickster god. <laughs> you kind of, it's one thing to like, you know, write it and, and to really go there. And then all of a sudden you're like, I'm on NPR talking to Terry Gross about my grandmother and yeah. one of the worst nights of our life. You know, like, oh, man. You know what I mean? So I, I would just have yeah. to, it's like gratitude, but also kind of not distance, but just kind of giving yourself something to focus on. And for me, it was like, just focus on why they are connecting with this. And because I believe in that. I believe in all of those opportunities for connection. That's very mature of you. Thank you. Really. <laughs> I like praise. Yeah, it's one of the hardest things to, in a way, detach yourself from, you know? Right. Well, and maybe that's the other thing. I, for a very long time, and I, it's always a work in progress, but was not good at taking praise. Oh. And I remember having some initial, you know, little glimmers of success, like with poetry, little da-da-da. And it was like, Someone comes up to you after the panel or after the reading and compliments you. And I would be so flustered, so worried about, I don't know, being arrogant or not matching whatever they were saying. It was almost like the person couldn't even get their words out because I'd be immediately like kind of politely shutting them down. And I remember talking to my mom's best friend. I call her my Aunt Janet, uh, and I was explaining, and she was like, that's the thing. It's like, you are shutting them down, you know? And she was like, think about how that feels. It's like someone is kind of expressing their vulnerability. They're saying, oh, I really can, you know? And, and then you're immediately going, oh, no, 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 no. And like, what she would tell me was, if someone comes up to you and gives you a compliment that you feel like is just too much, just say thank you, just thank them. And in your head, make a vow to work to reach where they're perceiving you. Wow. It's almost like it's your business. It's none of their business. <laughs> you feel. And you know, that's helpful. You know what I mean? That like so beautiful. I think it was it was work years in the making. I want to make you clear. <laughs> I'm taking notes. Um anyway, let's get to your poetry collection, Alive at the End of the World. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering if we can launch right in with a poem. Sure. Um Maybe the one on page eight, if you had an off button, oh, wow, I'd name yeah. you off. I don't know if you read that one a lot. I'm excited. I don't. I haven't gotten to read it very often, and I'm delighted that you asked me to read it. Thank you. Yeah, and if there's anything at all you want to say before you read it, you know, go ahead. Sure. I, I, I would just say that it uh, the 
inspiration, the narrative of this poem was inspired by a real article about a robot in Japan that, you know, a scientist who had been developing this robot gave some interviews. And so I guess we'll start there. If you had an off button, I'd name you off. Phase one. In a bright room, a scientist builds himself a robot, a boy, and names him a feto, affection in Italian. The boy's black eyes squint into a sweet blink whenever the man who made him makes him smile. This story is about how we create what we think we need. A child who smiles as if to say, I didn't know joy before I knew you, and you are all I know. Phase two. Sleepy and blue lit in your dark, you read an article about little Afeto. In the photo on your phone, the boy whose name means a gentle fondness or liking is just a lifelike head on a table, connected by wires to computers that make him blink and smile as he is affected by the man who made him. You wonder if his father, I mean the scientist, remembers Afeto's smile means, isn't this what you wanted? Phase three. The scientist tells a reporter, here in Japan, we believe all objects have a soul, so a metal robot is no different from a human. He poses for pictures next to the head on the table, then proudly announces it's time to teach Afeto how to suffer. The boy is given hands of his own, which the scientist holds, then caresses, then pinches, 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 pausing to take note. The boy winces, and the scientist smiles. Afeto, this is what I wanted. Phase four. The scientist, who also happens to be a father, turns Afeto off, the machines off, all the lights in the bright white room off, and goes home to a table where dinner, a wife made of smiles, and an exquisite son are waiting for him. At the table, he lies about his day until the food is gone, and his son begins to yawn. He pulls lies from the blue book he keeps beside his boy's bed. One more story, the boy begs, and the scientist, who is also a father, turns to the tale of the puppet who wished to be real. Phase five. The end of the world is a boy who feels all the pain we give him, but never bruises, never has a history to show for who happened to him. The end of the world is a boy all alone in an electric dark, telling himself a story to keep from crying without tears. The end of the world is a boy willing himself to focus on the soft touches and caresses that came before the pain. The end of the world is a boy who doesn't need to be a real boy to grieve like one. I love this poem. Thank you so much. Yeah. And there's that line... This story is how we create what we think we need. Yes. 
And I feel like it rings through the entire collection in a way, you know, this mm. questioning about like, why do we create what we create? And then it takes this really dark turn. Uh, you know, when you find out that the scientist created this, you know, quote unquote boy, not for his affection, right. but for his suffering, to make him right. suffer, basically. Mm -hmm. You know, he proudly announces it's time to teach Afetso how to suffer. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a dark question that I have about that. But do you feel like we create characters to make them suffer? Even even when the character is like the I in your memoir, Right. Right. Um, I would say, I don't know if we create characters to make them suffer, but I will say certainly we create characters to use them with a lot of different intentions. And often <laughs> putting them in peril, putting them kind of through a, a crucible of some kind to force, you know, a, a narrative arc, which, you know, hopefully there's some kind of idea or value or moral that is being examined given nuance. But at the end of the day, yeah, I, I think that's part of why Afeto the robot, who also, of course, is echoing Pinocchio and is also, as you point out, like echoing characters. And I would say, you know, even like we create poems, we create these, these beautiful mm -hmm. little things and, and why and, and then and, we pinch them right right or you know i often joke that i feel like my poems i'm like okay i can't wait to inflict this poem <laughs> on you i mean you're you're absolutely right i mean there's so and it's interesting even in that reading i realized there were different themes um coming up for me that i hadn't considered in a minute but you know like what like what well i mean you know that uh, children like that on top of you know the peril and everything that's going on right now this sense of being alive at the end of the world you and i are adults yeah. and though it's very bewildering um you know we are i would say kind of armed protected by our experience and all the skills that we have honed to learn how to cope and children are just totally vulnerable and you know and Afeto poor Afeto I think is you know takes the idea of a child and makes Afeto even more vulnerable um, right. and so that he's his, a head on a table basically yeah and that he's just like just totally earnest and that even you know after it's over and he's alone in the dark I mean that's when like in the writing I, I want to cry I didn't yeah. but I wanted yeah. to cry um, just at the idea of you know, you cause harm, and just because you move on, of course, the people who experience that harm, it's not over for them. It's just getting started. Yeah. What made you want to write this poem? Like, what? Okay, you came across this article. Why did you connect to it? Yeah, I mean, I just think in that article, I was so, and I can't remember like the headline, but even, it, there was just so much and just, it was a very short article. So just in a few paragraphs, I was like, oh my God, you know, like naming this robot <laughs> after the idea of affection and a gentle, like so sweet. And then the article had a picture of the robot and it's like, and I mean, and it's true, the head is, Feito looks very sweet, but then it's so disturbing that it's just like wires sprawling. It's like, oh my, you know, there was just like so much going on. And then, you know, I mean, the roots of the word robot are connected to slave, you know, and this book is very much rooted in my perspective as a black queer person and the legacy of racism, enslavement, racial violence. And so there was something about both just the quotes, the name of the robots, the photo that was getting my attention, but also 
I, and the reason this poem appears in the book early as it does is that to me it's a bit of like in the status quo. It's kind of like why is the world ending? And it's like, well, look at what the hell we're doing. It's like a scientist that's supposed to be helping us understand the future, hmm. but the behavior and the perspective is so in line with the past. You know, it, it's just so um, brutal. And so it's kind of like, well, yeah, maybe the world should be ending if this is <laughs> if Yeah, this, this is, is what, what we're, we're doing. doing with our creativity. It's funny that you mentioned the status quo because actually the next poem that I was mm. curious about is a song for the status quo. Yeah. Uh, but I have one more question about Afeto. Wait, did it just, did I just forget? Oh, yep, 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 yep. You were talking about slavery, like the connection yes. of robot. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you said that, it made me think of minstrelsy. Right. How minstrelsy was like this way of also like inflicting or like exaggerated joy and exaggerated pain, right. exaggerated emotions onto mm -hmm. an exaggerated imitation right. of black people, yes. basically. Yeah, and and often, not always, but often those performers were black themselves, right, mm -hmm. in blackface. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and I, and I think you do see that in, in poems that appear, certainly the poem that I'll read next, The Status Quo, you see that sense of, like, what does it mean to be entertained by performances that are painful or costly or predatory, you know, and like a song for the status quo is definitely an example of like the people who are making the work that we then enjoy for decades and decades to come very often are not well compensated and certainly not appreciated and honored for, for their labor and for their, their genius. Absolutely. Before we read the poem, mm -hmm. A Song for the Status Quo, Are you talking about a, a real song, a specific song? No. And, and, and in fact, sometimes in specificity, I worry that we are allowed to kind of contain a dynamic and say, oh, that's so tragic what happened to that specific person, <laughs> that poor woman, that poor, you know what I mean? And, and, you know, again, just like with the poem about the robot, these two poems are kind of functioning to explain the status quo, the reason the world is ending. How did we get here? Are we totally innocent? Like, I think so often we're, you know, like the kind of cultural posture we take is like, oh, oh my God, what's going on? And it's kind of like, well, also we're complicit. This climate change isn't just coming out of nowhere, you know, for yeah. example. And so I think using music as a medium, I was interested in kind of keeping it open because, yeah, you, you don't have to think long, unfortunately, to think of the long history of women, Black women in particular, who have had these yeah. situations. Yeah. All right. Let's okay, read the poem. It's on page 13. Thank you. Oh, I love this guiding me through. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And yeah, the one other thing I will say is that it is a page long sentence <laughs> so i'm gonna right. take a sip of tea <laughs> before i get into it all right um okay a song for the status quo the history of music in america is a sample of the sound of a woman sobbing 
That reminds me of a lie a man told me about myself once, while a song I thought I loved played on the radio. And stay with me now, listeners. The song is a cover of a cover. And the woman who wrote the original version never got a dime for her work and died poor, doomed to haunt dusty, unread liner notes until the end of time. Because a white man stole the song from the black man she gave the song to as an act of what she thought was love, but of course was devotion. Which, as many but not nearly enough of us now understand, is often mistaken for love, but actually is more akin to unpaid labor, which is really a kind of slavery. Though I try to avoid calling things that aren't actually slavery, slavery, because most days accuracy is all I have left. And anyway, I'm losing my train of thought the way that woman lost money she never had, but was certainly owed. And I'm sitting in a rented red Corvette and it's getting late and I'm lonely, but not alone. And I'll be damned if the cover of the cover of the song isn't playing on the radio right now. And it sounds like an up-tempo jam about dancing until dawn burns the night away, which is really a metaphor for ruining a mattress with the smell of good and possibly great sex. But also the mattress is us, and the ruin is us, and the sex is us, and the smell is us, and I guess the good is us too, but I don't believe in greatness anymore. Because glory isn't possible in an America where the cover of a cover of a song that ruined a black woman's life can reach me through the radio and feel like romance or hope or a reason to reach over and squeeze the thigh of a man more likely to crash the car and kill us both, then tell me he loves me and mean it. So good. Thank you. Your reading also is just, you. yeah, you really I've know. practiced with that one. I was okay. like, you, you can't write, like, one, I just, I'm like, you can't write a poem you can't read. That's something <laughs> I'm, I'm like, this is an oral tradition. But I was like, if I'm going to, you know, do this audacious kind of formal, <laughs> then I need to be able to navigate it. <laughs> That's good. Because, yeah, there's like a kind of run-on quality to it, right? It's mm -hmm. just like one thing leads to another and yes. also it's like a cover of a cover of uh -huh. you know the song that was mm -hmm. stolen and you know it's just uh -huh. it's like the grievances keep piling up in a way right. you know right yeah because it's like the speaker isn't hearing the song live the speaker isn't singing the song so it's already like three steps removed before <laughs> yeah like it's gone yeah. through the machinery of mm -hmm. of commerce basically oh i love that i love that I do. Yeah. And I mean, I'm also so interested in the way that at the end, the poem turns away from the story of this woman mm -hmm. and turns towards the I who is, you know, sitting in a car mm -hmm. with, quote, a man more likely to crash the car and kill us both than tell me he loves me and mean it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, that that unrequited love in that line sort of echoes the unrequited love that this woman right. who right. gave her song to a black man, mm -hmm. quote, as an act of what she thought was love, but of course was devotion, mm -hmm. which as many but not nearly enough of us now understand, is often mistaken for love, but actually is more akin to unpaid labor. Mm 
Yeah. Part of it, I guess, is like justifying the form, this one sentence. Why is it all one sentence? And it's like, well, everything's related. So for this speaker, everything is there. And it's almost like the structure is almost like, well, like a mountain to valley to mountain kind of like we start in the present in the car. It's very simple. A song comes on and a speaker has a reaction. And then we go down into the valley of the context and the context and the history and the history. And you're right. It takes it to the pain. And, and what does it mean for your pain, which is a theme kind of throughout the book, to, to function in a different way, to get away from you, for your pain to be used? And then it's like we begin to climb back towards the present, and then we're back in the car. Right. <laughs> and I do think the, the, the valley of the poem is the awareness of, like, what does it mean to, like, work for people you love, but that don't love you. Um, and unfortunately, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> unfortunately, that's, a, you know, a relatable experience. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know if you're now talking about the small experience of not being loved back by one person in particular, you know, or if you're talking about that bigger thing that I think right. so many black artists mm-hmm. have talked about. Right. I also think it's about the function of countries, you know, I mean, in my opinion, I think I'm right. The best things about America have come oh. from black people, uh-huh. you know, and that's not yeah. just entertainment. That's infrastructure. That's ideas. That's inventions. That's ideals. But but again, what does it mean to have this relationship to a country that it is not a healthy dynamic and so often the virtue, the passion, the love of what we're doing kind of helps us keep doing it but but what does it mean when it's um just kind of setting you up for the next twist of the knife you know and right. yeah right yeah as you say here you know like uh, that you know it, it, it it's not love it's devotion and devotion is often mistaken for love but mm-hmm. isn't really it's unpaid labor mm-hmm. um I was wondering how you yourself navigate that when you create, you know, like how do you create without spending yourself? Right. That's a great question and certainly something that I take on throughout the book in pretty direct ways at times, right? Um, One is time. I take my time. I really do. I, I don't believe that suffering is romantic. I don't think it is even artistic. Um, I think it's self-destructive, you know, like, or, or rather to establish the idea that to make good art, however you want to define that means it has to cost you something. No, no, I don't, I don't think that's healthy. I, I, it's certainly not sustainable. And I just think we really have to speak against that as artists, because if we don't, we're complicit in creating a culture where that is rampant. So I, I try to take my time and be thoughtful about what am I actually trying to do? It's okay to have like, in, in both of these poems, right? Like the spark of like the idea is one thing, but then the object that comes out of it is often very different. And for me, the writing process is both about revision, is both about pushing myself toward a better, more startling image or sound or rhythm, sure. But also it's like, well, what are we trying to do with this beauty? I'm not just trying to write 
beautiful poems. I'm not just trying to entertain or even like move the re I'm not just trying to move you. <laughs> you know, I, I'm I'm trying to use all of my skills to take on big ideas, ideas that I think are killing us, have killed us, and are, are kind of chipping away at our humanity. So there have been times in the past, and certainly when I was a younger writer, where it was like, I felt like, surely the way to do something interesting is like, set yourself on fire, and then go yeah. like, look at me, look at what you've done, look what I've made of myself for you. But like, again, I, I think that's... Um, kind of juvenile to be honest um and 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 dangerous yeah. frankly dangerous so yeah because yeah, people yeah. will want more right it's almost right. like a gladiator kind of thing you know now they want blood right they want blood and it's just it's not sustainable it's you know what i right, mean right so, right um yeah you know this this poetry collection is so different from your memoir in that sense i feel like the way that you are Uh, <clears throat> you're not in a confessional mode, let's say, right. in this poetry collection. There are poems about, you know, your mom and your pain around, you know, having to bury her. Mm -hmm. But it's not the heart of the book, I would say. Mm -hmm. And and there are so many other poems that, you know, you go in all this kind of like formal and subject weirdness. You know, there's mm -hmm. like this kind of magic realism, right. body double situation. Mm -hmm. There's the AI. There are these like pop culture mashup persona poems you know like you have all these ways of getting outside of yourself right. and I was just wondering like when you put it next to your memoir mm -hmm. that blew up to such an extent mm -hmm. but was also much more about your pain right. I mean there's like joy and humor and so much love in your memoir right mm -hmm. like I don't want to sure. disregard that But the pain is often what people also in these interviews asked about. Uh -huh. And I'm just wondering, like, you know, we live in a world where black pain is... Uh, a commodity. A commodity. There yeah, you go. Yeah. Right. It attracts eyeballs. It attracts mm -hmm. revenue, mm -hmm. clicks, you know, mm -hmm. however you want to define it. And so I'm just wondering, like... Have you been burnt in some way from doing that in a memoir? Mm. Is that why this... Poetry, like I, I feel like I'm asking leading questions. No, That's I mean, not this really is what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> no, these are I, I hear I hear the the, the the nuances and the facets you're honoring. Um, it's very thoughtful. I mean, I think you know how we fight for our lives, even as, as a title, is kind of indicating that it's the beginning of the you know to live is you need to live great. Now what? <laughs> it's, it's kind of, and I guess how we fight for our lives is like literally one decision at a time. We just keep trying. Yeah, that's what it. You know, and, and it's like such an obvious thing, but you can see, given I mean, the what first I've time kind of, you have it, it's not obvious. <laughs> right, right, and, and so yeah, like now I'm like duh, but at the time that was truly an earned realization, and I was like, oh my, really? Like, <laughs> I'm gonna have to keep doing this stuff. Right, yeah, and so you know, I so I think it was important for me to honor, frankly, like the crucible of experiences that made that realization necessary and meaningful. And so pain is, it's a part of that. And so I think, you know, I, I don't feel burned. I'm, I'm grateful, you know, with the memoir. If anything, you know, it's like my heart breaks because the pain, people 
identify, they see it. They're like, oh mm. gosh, I feel this way too. And it it makes me really sad, for example, to get in front of a group of college students, let's just say, and read from the book's opening chapter, which takes place in 1998. I'm like 12 years old, a teenager so confused about sexuality and identity. And to know that young people in 2022 are going through the exact same, like that breaks my heart. You know, I wish the book could exist as an artifact of the past, but unfortunately that's not how it's existing, right? It's like people are like, oh, wow, this is where I am right now. So, so I And then same-sex the, marriage is on the chopping block right so now. Like, it's you know, insane. I mean, to think of healthcare, to think of, and, and that's part of why to get to the poetry collection, you know, I do write about my mother in grief because it's about 10 years into grieving her, uh, a parent who died of heart disease. We're in another pandemic that was, you know, disproportionately impacting black and brown women in particular. And I don't think my mother would have survived this pandemic, you know, and that's an awful realization. And so I think it's not that I was burned or that I felt, but, but that I was more interested in, well, one, when we think about the end of the world and dystopia and systemic failure, Black and queer people are not centered as the historians. We're not, like, usually given the ledger <laughs> to go, well, <laughs> here's how we got here and here's what's probably going to happen next. We're, like, extras or, like, magical figures who, like, create the music and the moments of comic relief or the, like, abstract wisdom that the, like, white everyman then uses to save the yeah. day. And so Alive at the End of the World is rooted in my confidence and my sense of authority. I know I have things to say about our culture, about our world, about our future. I know that there is value in in what I've come to understand because so much of the experience of this era is that we're grieving. We're grieving the collapse of the status quo. We're grieving systemic failure. We're grieving, you know, assumptions and histories and myths and lives kind of falling apart or more likely going up in flames right in front of us. And like, who better? (laughs) Who better to talk about that grief than someone who's been thinking about it for a while now? (laughs) You have the funniest punctuation of laughter like seriously you say the bleakest thing and then comes the biggest laughter my therapist has pointed it out he was like right when you say or about to say something absolutely devastating and i think you are aware Said, that you're that what you're saying is devastating you like break into this big smile and there's just a laugh i mean that's what you know i mean i also think i'm really delighted that with this book i think it's the funniest book i've written um and and there's there's a lot of like like mad humor as in like mad hatter but also like there's a lot of mad humor in the book and because yeah for me as you see that is like usually when i'm laughing it's like kind of when i'm like almost like exacerbated (laughs) yeah yeah it's either laughing or crying exactly Yeah. yeah it's like the musical it's like the moment in a musical when it's like the emotions are so big, so that's why the characters break into song, you elevate because you want to honor, at least vocally, that this is, we've entered a new plane.
I have one last poem that I wanted to ask you to read, but it's a long one. Okay. I think it's a little bit too long for what we can do on the podcast. It's the one that's called Said or the Other One. Yeah, do you want to read like a section of it or? Yeah, I was thinking maybe we can read the whole of part one. Okay. The beginning of part two so that you know like what right. happens. And then part four, read the whole thing. Perfect. Um, Perfect. So yeah. Okay. Okay. Saeed or the other one. It started as a joke. The last word from the night's last poem left my mouth, and someone in the audience already had his hand raised. From the way he outpaced the applause, insisting on keeping his hand in the air while everyone around him clapped, I knew that, however it might be punctuated or phrased, his question was not going to be a question. There is so much pain in your work, he said. It's beautiful, he said. Gutting, he said. Searing, he said. Brutal, no. Bruising, he said. But the pain. There is so much pain. Do you think you need your pain in order to write? Oh, honey, I answered, in a voice that was mine as much as it wasn't. You've got it all wrong. My pain needs me. And then I did that thing I do with my eyebrows and the muscles around my mouth and the angle of my neck that says, trust me, whatever you think just happened, that was a joke. And the audience laughed. The man stared at me blankly as if we were alone on a date and I had just disappointed him with my opinion on threesomes or food allergies. I ignored him and tossed out a couple more quips to buy myself time because I've met men like him many times before and many times since, and those bastards really will wait you out for the answers they believe they deserve. Now that everything that happened has happened, I can tell you that, honestly, it wasn't a bad question. It might have even been a good one. But sometimes you just don't like the outfit the question is wearing. Sometimes you don't even want good questions. Sometimes you realize 30 or 40 minutes too late that you're not the person everyone in the room seems to think you are. And the right question, asked in the wrong way by the right wrong person, could bring you to your knees right there on that empty stage. Sometimes you just want to go back to your hotel room and sleep, or pretend to sleep, until it's time to go to the airport and you can go home. Anyway, Eventually, I answered his question, and then the audience and I decided to move on with or without him. Our various nights were waiting for us just outside that room. I really do think it was the joke, but it could have been how much I wanted to pop the white balloon of his blank stare, or maybe it was the brief panic I felt and killed behind my eyes every time he said the word, pain thank you okay <clears throat> Said or the other one part two a brief excerpt <laughs> <laughs> the thing about those questions is that they follow you home I was on the phone with my editor later that week venting about that guy's question and all of that question's siblings when I unlocked my door 
and dragged my suitcase into my apartment. Just before I reached for the light switch, I saw what looked like a dead body sprawled on the couch, and I screamed and dropped my phone, because that's exactly what we all do when we find dead bodies waiting for us in the dark in our living rooms after business trips. <laughs> it's a great cliffhanger. If we would end here, your like, sales would go like, up. What is going yeah. on? <laughs> exactly. Oh. So do you want to say a little bit, like a recap a little bit yes. of like what happens next right, so we right. can and set it up for like four. part four? Yeah. Yeah. So, and it relates to so much of what we've discussed, you know, we don't get to decide <laughs> when we're done with an experience or a dynamic. And then certainly the idea of, you know, in this case, like a, a difficult question, you know, it follows you home. It's not over. And it's often, you think you can kind of walk away or laugh your way away from an experience or like the speaker um, is like a kind of masterful public speaker so he's he's working the audience and kind of going look over there and you know kind of using all of his tools but even still a week later he gets home and basically what we see later in in the story um, is a doppelganger of himself made of his pain heard him say my pain needs me and came into existence. That's all we know. And so, yeah, the speaker and his doppelganger, Saeed or the other one, basically spend a night together. <laughs> or or they, they really lose track of time. So maybe who knows how long they were in there. And they just try to really, in a way, answer that man's question and to really kind of make sense of why they need each other. What is their relationship? Um, and so from there, I'll read... The, the last section that appears toward the end of the book. Okay. The question stung, but never hurt. What hurt was how difficult it was to answer them, even alone in the warmth of our company. I don't know how long we sat in our living room going back and forth. At some point, I poured us some wine, then whiskey. We got sushi delivered, but barely touched it. We just couldn't stop talking. I'd answer his questions and then try to actually answer them and fail. And then it would be his turn. We really tried to get to the truth of myselves. But no matter how many ways we approached the subject, we always ended up standing on its front lawn, confounded and without a key. I didn't know why he needed me, just that he did. And the feeling was mutual. A white man in the audience with a white balloon of a blank stare had asked me a question about my pain, and there it was, an urgent tug in the ether, a call and response inside the church of us. The sky changed color, and we paused to look at it, both a bit puzzled because we couldn't tell if we were looking at dawn or dusk. I picked up my glass, and just before I brought it to my lips, I felt a sob coming a moment too late to stop it. I cried so hard I didn't even notice how gently he had taken the glass out of my hand. I didn't realize he had crowded into the chair with me until I felt his arms wrapped around me. He kissed me on my wet cheek, and I laughed because I didn't know what else to do. It's possible I had been sputtering out my thoughts the entire time, but feeling a little more coherent now, I started talking and didn't stop until I was nearly panting because I needed him to know that I had wanted to cry on stage that night. And it wasn't that man's question, really. Well, it was, in a way. It's just that I had been in the woods for so long, and then I came to that man's question, and it was like a clearing, a little sunlit field overrun with tall grass and all kinds of wildflowers I used to be able to name, 
And I could have done anything in that clearing. I could have danced in wild erratic circles, or gathered flowers for a crown, or lain down and rested, or yelled out the names of everyone I loved and missed. I could have marched right into the middle of that field and listed my hurts one by one until I was free of them. Anything. I could have done anything. But instead, I turned around and went back into the woods. That's what I always did. I went back into the woods. My words blended with the brightening light drifting in from the window. I paused then, unsure if I had been talking or thinking. He nodded as if to say yes. And it felt so good being known, I almost cried again. They want to see me in that clearing. Maybe they think I need it, or they need it, or maybe they just want it, I said finally. But I don't want to go out there for them. We sat in silence, both tired and a bit relieved, and then mushed into the chair as we were, his cheek was still against my cheek, and I felt the muscles in his face moving the way we do when we're about to make a joke. Well, he said, gently feeling his way into the setup. I could be you out there for a little while. I mean, I'm pretty good at it. I chuckled, and we slid back into silence already picturing him on stage with my words in his mouth. Thank you. <laughs> it's amazing. Like, I really, this, I mean, I, I plan my interviews, obviously, but I did not expect this to be such the culmination point of everything that we talked right, about. Was, and, and you and I were, like, making eye contact and, like, yeah. all the little beats where it was like, Wow. <laughs> This, yeah, this is really some synchronicity. I mean, it's yeah. amazing, you know. Um, yeah, it's a great conceit, this body double that is your pain and you both need each other. You know, it's it's really great. And yeah, I just wanted to pick up on two lines or, or maybe like a few lines from mm -hmm. the poem. Well, first of all, the fact that you're comforting each other. Mm. Like, I don't know conceptually exactly how to interpret that, but it just hit me emotionally, you know, that you and your pain can be kind to each other. Right. Know? I mean, it's it's interesting. And, and I'm glad, you know, that the, the poems you've asked me to read, it's been such a delight to get to share them. I think initially, I think it was going to be, and it is a scary, it's an unsettling story. I, I think it's actually unsettling, frankly, that the speaker gets used to the situation so quickly, <laughs> which, which to me almost feels like a little bit of a commentary of what's going on. It's kind of like all the like mass shootings, for example, and we kind of are like, I guess this is life now. So there's a touch of unease, but for him as a character, um, initially I thought, you know, it might be like, like ex machina <laughs> or something violent or bad might happen. But then I was like, oh, this is actually the most unexpected thing that, yeah. that, that they could be there for each other. And I don't know. I, I think something that crosses my mind a lot is that this time we're living in is really demanding. Like I often tell, like, I feel like I'm having to run on like all cylinders. And then I'm like, I could actually use some more cylinders. And so maybe that's part of what the story is gesturing toward this. And it's a fantasy, you know, but th this fantasy of like, wouldn't it be nice to have just a little bit more self to to take on everything that's asked of us. I mean, you can't go to a church or a movie theater without worrying about getting shot. You you can't 
walk down the street without worrying about whether or not a cop is going to shoot you in the back with, you know, like it, it's just, so there's just so much. And so the the terms and conditions, I guess we're being asked to kind of live under, it, it's just not, it's not sustainable. It's not just. Yeah. Yeah. And, and <clears throat> earlier you were talking about like, oh yeah, my therapist always says that like right as I'm going into or come out of some big painful revelation, like, there is the joke, you know, or there's the big laughter. And I'm wondering, like, because you are a really gifted talker, whatever that mm -hmm. means, right? Like mm -hmm. in an interview, you're mm -hmm. just, you're so winning and so funny. And on stage, I can imagine that you are too. And so I'm wondering, oh, because, um, you know, the writer Kiese Lehmann? Yes, good friend. Love Kiese. Right. Oh, really? Yes, yes. Okay, cool. Uh, well, then maybe you've already talked about this with him, but, you know, he wrote his memoir called Heavy. Mm -hmm. And it's about, yeah, like being black and fat and how the world responds to you. Mm -hmm. And he's a very funny person. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and on a recent episode of This American Life, he was talking about how he's come to realize that humor is his shield. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That it's a way for him to not have to show people how hurt he really is because mm. he keeps the power in a sense. You know, when you make people laugh, you have right. the power. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, do you recognize that? Yeah. I think... I think humor is my relationship to humor. I think is pretty complicated. I love it. I mean, I, I'm a funny person, so yep. <laughs> I think it has all kinds of functions. There have certainly been times where, like, the speaker in sight or the other one, I use humor to deflect, mm -hmm. deflect or redirect. I mean, to, you know, sometimes you kind of have to do to get things back on the rails in like a, a compassionate, respectful way, because you're not going to be like that was an inappropriate question. Like, what are yeah. you like? You, we're in you know, public. Right. What do you think you are? Exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, certainly if you've been like teaching or any, you know, like sometimes humor and warmth, it's not necessarily like to evade accountability. It's so much like, let's go back to the more productive framework. But how do I do that in a way without shaming people? So that's certainly part of it. Sometimes it may just be straight up deflection. Sometimes I'll definitely like laugh to just like run away from something I don't want to deal with. I also, though, think especially for my poetry readings, mm -hmm. it's almost like a set and you're like picking order and it's almost like you're creating a chapbook in front of people. And so you have these little breaks to add context. And so a lot of it is I'm using humor to keep the audience locked in. I mean, I'm, I'm, these poems are tough. These ideas are a little unrelenting. And I mean, and again, it's like when I'm alone at my desk, I'm like, ah, we're going there. But it's like... <laughs> As an audience member, particularly like in a space, you know, you don't want to feel like people are just like throwing, you, like a post, just like Grenades. throwing bricks at you or something. Yeah. So it's like, how do you keep, how do you make people feel safe? How do you let them know you are like a professional and they're in good hands as we're doing this difficult work? And I think, you know, I don't know. I just think about like good teaching experiences. I think there's a type of teacher I really admire who can make people feel safe, honored, 
fun environment. Like this is challenging work, but woo, we're gonna do it together and won't that be great? And so I think more often than not, that's what I'm trying to do with the jokes, you know, in between poems is kind of release the tension, acknowledge it. And so that's how you, you keep them there for the next one. <laughs> right, right. I love that. The complexity of like all the roles that humor can play. I you know? love humor. I think I've been writing and thinking about it a lot more because it's, um, I don't know, there's just a lot there. I, it Maybe humor is my next white whale. I feel like I've been thinking about grief so much. And it is interesting that I've got a lot of, got a lot of feelings about laughter. <laughs> Saeed Jones is the author of two poetry collections, Prelude to Bruise, winner of both the Penn Joyce Osterweil Award for Poetry and the Stonewall Book Award Barbara Giddings Literature Award in 2015, and named a finalist for the 2014 National Book Critics Circle Award for Poetry, and his latest poetry collection, Alive at the End of the World, which comes out in September. His memoir, How We Fight for Our Lives, won the Kirkus Prize for Nonfiction, the Lambda Literary Award for Gay Memoir and Biography, the Stonewall Book Award, Israel Fishman Nonfiction Award, and the Randy Schiltz Award for Gay Nonfiction. It was listed in Kirkus Review's Best Books of 2019 in the Best Memoirs section and on Time's list of must-read books of 2019. He has received a Pushcart Prize as well as fellowships from Kaveh Kanem and Queer Art Mentorship. To find out more, check out the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikafus and Erik van der Weste. I'm Helena de Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening. 